This is the fourth Sunday in Lent, and once again we had a, a long gospel to read, but an important gospel. Last week the theme was about baptism as it related to the water that satisfies our spiritual hunger, the water of life, both in, in all three of the readings, from Exodus, from Paul's letter, and from the Gospel according to St. John about the woman at the well. And today, the theme is about baptism again as it connects to the idea of enlightenment or illumination and a reflection on Jesus as the light of the world. So that what I want to preach about today are really the reading from Ephesians and the reading from John's Gospel. I'm not actually sure why we read the reading we did from 1 Samuel, other than to believe that somehow the process of anointing and God anoint, and the anointing we receive at our baptism, uh, that there's some connection to be made. But there is a significant line in there that we should remember. And that is that uh, we look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And in the ancient Hebrew reckoning, the heart was the seat of the intellect. And so in a biblical sense, we have affirmed what we are beginning to learn about the nature of the human brain. And that is that thinking and feeling happen simultaneously. So... Emotions are part of the process of thinking. They're not mutually exclusive. The heart is the seat of the emotions. God knows which is everything that is in our hearts, we believe. And today, the readings from Ephesians and the reading from John's Gospel are about how the illuminative processes of God are at work so that we become more clear and more able to understand God's purposes for each one of us. A little 3995 biblical scholarship about Ephesians, because this is important with regard to the section that we read. Most biblical scholars, at least the ones Episcopalians read and study, would tell you that um, it's highly probable that Paul did not write Ephesians. That it is, as they say in biblical scholarship, deuteropauline. So some of you may say, who cares? And others of you may be horrified. But there's an important reason why we mention this sort of thing. And that is, the, as Episcopalians... We believe that there is a threefold test for what we find is authoritative in our faith and belief. The Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. And so in Ephesians, we're hearing today about the church influenced by Paul's missionary work coming to terms with the pastoral reality on the ground at the time this epistle was written. 
So that means that the heir, H-E-I-R, of Paul who wrote Ephesians is speaking about a circumstance with regard to how they have come to understand baptism and how we understand what the illuminative processes of God does in our hearts. And that is to bring enlightenment, to bring the light. At one time we were in the dark and now we are in the light. We see more clearly. Just think about this. The earliest piece of writing in the New Testament is 1 Thessalonians. Paul's letter to the th first letter to the Thessalonians. It dates from 48 AD to 50, somewhere in there. Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven in 30. So the earliest piece of literature in the New Testament is nearly a generation after the Christ event. And so here we have Ephesians written sometime in the mid to late 50s or early 60s. The, late, the last letter Paul wrote would have been 62 because he was murdered. He was martyred on the road from Ostia to Rome. So here we have the Ephesian church saying, how do we understand baptism and what it does if this process of enlightenment is important, how does it affect my emotional, spiritual, and mental states? And one of the ways it does that is to bring moral and ethical clarity to the way you understand your life. And we talked last week about the importance of the Christian character, which is learning to live your life according to certain principles. And so by virtue of this, we begin to see that the Ephesian congregation was saying, when we prepare people for baptism, and after we're baptized, we need to keep reminding ourselves of the importance of uh, the maturing of our moral character. And you know what the great thing about being an Episcopalian is and being part of a church that is a liturgical church and has a liturgical year, is that we keep doing this over and over again. And some people may say, how can you stand it? You know, we live in the age of I want it fresh every time. And the fact of the matter is we do it over and over again because we have to keep being reminded of the deep things of Christian faith and belief. We have to be, keep being reminded of the fact that God is faithful to us. We have to keep being reminded of the fact that we need to live lives of some intention and that we need to continuously resharpen our focus and be in the light and not in the darkness. We read in the first Sunday of Lent about the temptation of Christ, and one of the things we discover after we read about Jesus' triumph in the wilderness over Satan, that these same temptations in one form or another come back to him throughout his earthly ministry just as they do for us. So the sharpening of our moral and ethical outlook is an important aspect of our faithful living in the baptismal covenant. At the very end of the reading from Ephesians today, we have an early baptismal hymn. 
a fragment in the New Testament. Sleepers awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Mrs. Bach's little boy, Johann Sebastian, wrote a hymn. Sleepers, wake. I think in our present hymnal, it's number 547. You can check me, but I'm, I'm not sure. So that's a hymn about something that comes from the biblical text. Sharpening our moral and ethical sensibilities. Seeing more clearly who we are and what we should do. This is not learning to live a life of some sort of moral superiority or ethical specialness or overweening political correctness. It is about the creation internally of a sure, steady moral outlook that can govern us even in the most challenging situations. And that's what's being spoken about here in this reading. Now, my biblical scholarship theme continues in John because we need to know some things about John's gospel and how we read it and listen to it and understand it. John is the latest of the four gospels. It was written probably somewhere between 90 and 100 A.D. So it is describing a situation on the ground with a Christian community out of which this gospel emerged where they are facing certain challenges and opportunities. And one of them is that they're beginning now to be booted out of the synagogue. We are reading in John's gospel the New Testament beginning of the parting of the ways. We see it in Matthew also. But in John's gospel, we see it in, a, in very great relief. Most biblical scholars believe and demonstrate with some um, convincingness, if that's a word, that John's gospel was written uh, using two sources. The ma- one of the major sources is known as the gospel of signs or the signs source. And this is a collection written down of all of the miracles that Jesus did, his mighty works. When I was in seminary, a book was written by John Fortness called The Gospel of Signs, and he reconstructed this in a very, very important piece of biblical scholarship, The Gospel of Signs. In the Gospel of Signs, there are seven major miracles that are part of this. And just so that you can amaze your friends, I'll read them to you. Turning the water into wine at Cana. The healing of the nobleman's son. The healing of the palsied man. By the way, the the, the pool of Siloam, And the place where the palsied man was healed have been discovered by archaeologists in the last 25 years. We've found those places in the ancient, in the the Middle East. The feeding of the 5,000, the storm on the lake, and Jesus walking on the sea, the healing of the blind man, today's gospel, and the raising of Lazarus. 
So we hear from number six today. A man born blind is healed by Jesus. This is one of the few healing stories of Jesus where he performs a manipulation. He spits on the ground, makes the mud, smears it. This sounds kind of gross, doesn't it? (laughs) To, yeah. Well, a lot of healers did that back then. So he smears it on this guy's eyes and tells him to go to the pool of Siloam to wash, which means sent. Sent was part of the baptismal. You and I are sent after our baptism to be God's people in the world. There's no explicit mention of baptism in this gospel, and yet the whole of the gospel is shot through with baptismal imagery. The man goes, washes his eyes, and he can see. Now what happens? The next piece of the process is some Pharisees observe that Jesus has performed this healing on a Sabbath. It is against the law to do this. And so they begin to question the blind man about who, he, who, the, who the guy is that healed him. You know, was he really born blind from birth? And the man healed said, I don't know who he is. All I know is that he gave me his sight. So they leave him and they go to his parents. And his parents say, yes, he was born blind. I don't know who healed him. I don't know anything about this. And anyway, ask him. He's a big boy now. He can answer your questions himself. And in the course of that first part of the gospel, uh, he refers, the, the man healed, Uh, He refers to Jesus as a prophet. This raises a big flag for the Pharisees who believe that he can't, some, he can't possibly be a prophet because he's healed on the Sabbath day and others are not so sure about this. Now here's the thing. By the time of the writing of John's gospel in the synagogue, we see a rewriting of the 18 benedictions that are said in the synagogue liturgy and number 12 becomes a benediction against and curses all who believe in the Messiahship of Jesus. And if anyone declares publicly that they believe Jesus is the Messiah, they are excommunicated from the synagogue. Aposta synagoga in Greek. By the time of the writing of John's gospel, this was a reality. Why then we now know why it says in this gospel they were afraid of the Jews. So the Pharisees see this guy again and they start talking to him. And they throw him out of the synagogue. Jesus sees him again and says to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he said, Tell me who he is that I may believe in him. And he said, You have seen him and I am he. And he declares his belief in Jesus. 
Jesus then at the end says something, I think, cryptic and hard to understand. I came into the world, in so many words, so that those who see may become blind and that those who are blind may now see. Who is he speaking of? Only people that are physically blind and people who can physically see now become physically blind? Or what is he talking about? Well, you know what? I don't know. But my speculation is that he's saying that, you know what? What I preach and teach and do, some people are never going to accept. They will always be blind to what is going on. And you and I sometimes can be so bound up with our prejudices that it's very hard for us to see clearly. One of our parishioners, Ralph Qualls, has a great line. He was told many years ago, you cannot use reason to reason somebody out of a position that they did not use reason to get themselves into. So Jesus may have, my grandfather had another line he used to use all the time when he got into controversial things. A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. I don't know, that's been true in my experience. And so Jesus in some ways is just exposing this reality to people not seeing Uh, God working in a new way. Now, also at the same time of the writing of John's Gospel, we see emerging some terminology that had its... In Ephesians, we began to see, and that is that baptism is referred to as illumination. Photismus in Greek. And even in some of the literature outside of the New Testament, like Justin Martyr, which dates from about 90 AD, the same time that John's Gospel was written, we have the word for baptism as enlightenment. And here we see Jesus as the light of the world, that what Jesus is by nature you and I become through adoption and grace at our own baptism and therefore have the potential and have the tools to allow God's illuminative process to work in us. We call this, of course, the action of the Holy Spirit, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And really, today's gospel is about that. It uses the imagery of the healing of a blind person, but its main point is that Jesus is the light of the world. We participate in that light, and we can be instruments of God's light in our relational life, and therefore make a big difference in the world. So this week, give thanks to God for the illuminative processes at work in you, Sometimes they seem dark and obscure, and other times clearer. See if you can remember any time in your life when you had a moment of clarity. You know, this isn't about using religious vocabulary to describe this. It is about seeing more clearly 
and understanding that God's light is within you as well as without. Amen.